the first vision of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts, literally the head or chief of the words, it says in the Aramaic text. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were, were before it. It had ten horns. I was considering the horns. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this little horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Pretty bizarre dream. You ever have bizarre dreams? crazy dreams. Daniel is a book about visions and dreams. In the first half of the book of Daniel, he has interpreted the visions and dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. I know that drives some of you crazy because you definitely you want to say Darius. Darius is one way of pronouncing that. Darius is the other way. Whatever version you choose, the first six chapters dealt with history and the narrative. So the first half of the book, the first six chapters, concerns itself with history, and the last half of the book is going to concern itself with prophecy. <clears throat> now remember, one-third of the Bible has prophetic implications. Prophecy always, always, always has something to do with God's plans. 
and God's people. Daniel receives a vision of four beasts, circa 556 BC in chapter 7. A vision of a ram and goats that takes place about 554 BC in chapter 8. So there's a vision of a man and a goat in chapter 8. Daniel's prayer and the announcement of the 77s in chapter 9. A vision of conflict in heaven in chapter 10 all the way to chapter 11. Prophecy that relates to events regarding Egypt and Greece and Syria and the end of time in chapter 12, verses 4 through 13. You'll remember that in this incredible book of Daniel, chapter 2 through chapter 7 are written in the Aramaic language. Chapter 1 and chapter 8 through 12 is written in the Hebrew language. Chapters 2 through 7, Aramaic. Why? Because almost certainly there is something about these chapters that was meant for the world to read. And chapter 1 and then chapter 8 to the end for the Jewish people or the Hebrew people to read. Now, that doesn't mean that Hebrew people can't read the other chapters or Gentile people can't read the other chapters, but there's a reason for this linguistic or language emphasis. The key verse in the book of Daniel is chapter 4, verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will, sets it over the lowest men. That key provides us the understanding of the emphasis of the entire book. Daniel is written about God's plan of the unfolding empires of the world as we think about the past and we think about the future. So pause for just a moment and think about that. Prophecy is like a corridor. It's like a hallway. And you look in one direction in its humanity's past. You look in another direction in its humanity's future. So again, when you look at prophecy every single time, in every single verse, in every single circumstance, you should say, where am I in the narrative of history? Are we looking at something that has already happened? Or are we looking at something that has yet to happen? And so, the key word, dream. The book reminds us that all of the past and all of the present and all of the future is in God's sovereign hand. The Gentile nations are impotent to oppose God and Israel and his plan to fulfill destiny and bring forth God's Messiah. Again, we pause. God's plan has always been to bring forth Jesus, to bring forth the Messiah. 
Nothing, nothing, no one and nothing can prevent God from bringing Jesus into the world. Why? Because there's nothing that could prevent God's plan to save you, to redeem you, to forgive you and wash you and cleanse you. And so, again, the Gentile nations are impotent in opposing God's plan and God's destiny. Has God told us everything we want to know? No. Has God told us everything we need to know? That's the right answer. That's the right answer. And I know that what you're thinking, I want to know more. <laughs> so do I. Get used to it. I know that perhaps for some of you, you're never going to be content until you think you know everything. It would appear that the Bible's prophecies are given in such a way that we can have a reasonable understanding of what's going to happen in God's purpose in the future. The Lord Jesus told us about his arrest and torture and death and resurrection in John's gospel. He prophesied, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be taken by men. They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. And in three days, I'm going to come back to life. And in John chapter 14, verse 29, it says, and now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you might believe. That gives us a clue about the ultimate purpose of prophecy. The ultimate purpose of prophecy isn't so that you know more. The ultimate purpose of prophecy is so that you would know more so that you could believe in what God says about his plans, about the future. There are critics who are quick to point out that the events of chapter 7 must have been written centuries after Daniel's supposed sojourn in Babylon and Persia. They presuppose that predictive prophecy is impossible and therefore the visions and prophecies are clever stories invented after the fact. But the Lord Jesus describes a time in Israel's future in Matthew chapter 24. The, the disciples asked Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? That is about the future. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It says in Matthew chapter 24 verse 1. Jesus in his answer gives a series of warnings and then he cites Daniel the prophet. In verse 15 he says, therefore... When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And then there's a parenthetical note that says, whoever reads, let him understand. One translation reads, reader, pay attention. It seems to me that it's impossible to do that unless we read Daniel unless we pay attention. 
And unless we want to try to understand what it is that we're reading, how can we unlock the mysteries of Daniel? We, we won't be able to unless we heed the exhortation to read and understand. We have to, we have to purpose in our heart. Lord, I want to read and I want to understand what it's saying. It would seem that the subject of the future surrounds the key players in the future, the Gentile nations, the Jewish people, the Jewish Messiah, a future Antichrist. When you're going to be reading in this chapter about these unfolding kingdoms, some of you might say, well, why doesn't the Bible talk about China or Central and South America? Why doesn't it point out the great empires of the Mayans and the Incas? or the African peoples? What is it about these people and these places that figure so predominantly in the unfolding drama called human history? And this is the reason why it's going to focus on these empires. Because these are the empires that are going to interact with Israel. These are the empires that are going to interact with God's people and God's plans and God's purposes. And that's why the emphasis is such. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119 verse 18, Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths that are in your law. And so we pray that prayer. Open up our eyes so that we can see what's in this book so that we can understand it, apply it to our lives, and then watch. Watch the future unfold. We're going to heed Peter's warning in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. If the end of all things is at hand, it doesn't say panic. Freak out, buy guns and gold and groceries and find a place in Montana or Idaho or at least northern Colorado. This is not the time to panic. Look what it says, the first beast, a lion with wings. It says in verse 1, in the, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. The last chapter ended with Daniel being safely delivered out of the lion's den during the reign of kings Darius and Cyrus. Now the narrative, we leave the narrative and we go back in time to the reign of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. Let me put this in perspective for you. The events of Daniel chapter 7 predate the events of Daniel chapter 6 by some 14 years prior to the fall of Babylon. If you're a person who's a numbers person and you like chronology and you like to think of things in terms of past, present, and future, the fall of Babylon takes place about 553 BC. In chapter 6, Daniel's in his mid-80s. In chapter 7, Daniel's a young man in his mid-60s. So, Daniel describes a dream. 
and visions. By the way, this is the only verse in the book of Daniel that tells us what Daniel did immediately upon having the dream and experiencing the visions. Look what it says. He records the visions. And he, with the intriguing statement, while on his bed, then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. This is interesting to me. Because apparently what he wrote down were the highlights. It could very well be that some of the details are left out. Now again, this is so disturbing because again, for the person who says, I want to know more, he says, I'm going to tell you the main facts. So the dream and the visions in chapter 7 and 8 predate the Persian Empire. Again, in your mind, you need to think Babylon is still in existence and in control. The Medes and the Persians have not captured Babylon and gained the ascendancy when he has the dream and the vision. Daniel, by the way, had helped kings interpret their dreams and solve mysteries, remember, in chapter 2 and 4. And now Daniel has this dream, and then he's going to consider it. Now, in Daniel's dream, there are four huge and terrifying beasts. Each of these beasts seems to represent a world empire and perhaps the empire's contribution to the unfolding of biblical history, again, as it pertains to God's people and God's plan. This is similar to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, you'll remember, about human history. It consisted of a statue that had a head of gold, chest and breast of silver, a loins, if you will, or middle parts of brass and bronze down to legs of iron and then feet with iron and clay. One of the things that you'll immediately understand is that Nebuchadnezzar's dream is from a human standpoint. It envisions human kingdoms and civilizations with some sort of dignity, if you will. But in Daniel's dream, human civilizations are terrifying and beast-like. In other words, he's going to describe what I think from God's perspective, if you will, of, of how God sees the unfolding of human history. So the way that I would put it, Nebuchadnezzar sees the power and the splendor of humanity. Daniel sees the power and the depravity of humanity. That's the difference. So the focus is on four kingdoms, and these nations play an important role in Israel's unfolding history leading up to the Messiah and the final kingdom that marks the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. But Daniel's vision and dream depicts these kingdoms as blood thirsty animals. And so this portion of Daniel chapter 7 through 12, again, is what is known in the genre as apocalyptic literature. 
Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. Apocalyptic literature is full of symbols and images. And in order to understand and interpret the writing, we have to have at least some understanding of what the original author, Daniel, had in mind and what the original audience understood the author to mean. And so what we're doing is we're dealing with this subject of biblical symbolism. Now, in order to understand what it is that we're reading, I need to help you think about a couple of things. Apocalyptic literature, because it is highly symbolic, we have to ask and answer the question, what does the symbol mean? I'm going to help you. The symbol can never mean what it never meant. Let me help you understand that. Imagine we are in Babylon, modern Babylon, in Iraq. Uh, the forces of the United States forces has toppled Saddam Hussein, and we fly the American flag in Babylon. There's the stars, and there's the stripes. Every single child who ever went to school in the United States of America, if you ask them, what do... Uh, so, so imagine we're, we talk to the people of Iraq, and we say, what do those stars and stripes stand for? And they say, it stands for Satan! And I ask you, what are the stars on the American flag? The states, the various states of the United States. It starts off with 13 stars. And then they're added as the states are added. And I ask you, what do those stripes stand for? The original 13 colonies. So the people in Iraq say, no, it stands for Satan. No, you're laughing because you go, no, it stands for the states and it stands for the colonies. It can never mean what it never meant. So in order to understand what it is that we're reading, we're going to have to ask and answer the question, what are these symbols? What are their meanings? Now, remember, apocalyptic literature, symbolic. But also the symbol is meant to evoke powerful, emotional response. I'm one of those guys. When I'm at a Broncos game or a Nuggets game, and it's time to put your hand on your chest and pledge allegiance or to sing the Star Spangled Banner, I'm one of those guys who kinds of mists up a little bit because when I, when I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, when I sing the Star Spangled Banner, I'm doing it with enthusiasm and love for my country. That symbol is supposed to evoke an emotional response. For some of you, remember, the thing that evokes an emotional response from you is the Hallmark Channel. You know, it's the story of love, and it creates some sort of emotional response. In Daniel, he's going to use words like terrifying and dreadful. In verse 15, later, he says, I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen, and my visions 
terrified me. If you don't understand the emotional response to these dreams and visions, the chances are you are going to have less than a satisfactory understanding of what it is that you're reading. But look in verse 2. It says, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, some scholars think that the great sea is a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. Because all of the kingdoms that unfold from Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans are all going to be centered around this great Mediterranean ocean. But often in the Bible, the four winds are, speak of an invisible circumstance that forces other kinds of circumstances. In John chapter 3, Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus, says, The wind blows wherever it wants. You don't see it. All you see is the result of the wind blowing. So the four winds are often a reference to how God acts in providence among his people in the nations of the earth. That's found in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 19, and Jeremiah chapter 49, and verse 36, and Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. So again, seas often represent people and nations. That's the way it's used in Isaiah chapter 17 and in Revelation chapter 17 verse 15. And so sea in scripture typically stands for the populace, the unorganized mass of humanity. And out of this unorganized mass of humanity, it says, and four great beasts in verse 3 came up from this sea. Each one was different from the other. Now, we don't have to look far to understand the meaning and the significance of the four great beasts. This isn't something that we have to leave to our imagination or guesswork. We know that there are four kingdoms from the earth because all we have to do is turn the page in Daniel and look at verse 17 and look what it says. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. And so the angelic being who is helping Daniel understand what it is that has just taken place, he's already given us the interpretation. These are human kingdoms that arise from the earth and the sea. In other words, this isn't some invisible, invisible spiritual metaphor or parable, these are literal kingdoms that come out of the earth. There's something distinctive about each one of them. In other words, when it says they are different from one another. So when it says that, then we know that even though there's elements that are the same, there are going to be elements that are distinct. And so in verse 4, it says the first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. And I watched till its wings were plucked off. 
and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Most of you have been to the zoo or you've watched TV or Animal Planet, and you know what a lion looks like. A lion is typically on four limbs, the paws in the front and the paws in the back. But in this strange image, Daniel sees eagle's wings. And so the first beast corresponds to the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great image. The image of the lion with eagle's wings would have been familiar to Daniel and to all of his readers. When Mary and I were in England not too long ago, we went to the British Museum of Natural History and we go into the Assyrian exhibit and then the Babylonian exhibit. And there in the Babylonian exhibit from the walls of Babylon, you see a lion with a massive head in a gigantic and muscled body with wings coming out of its back. In other words, this image would have been just as familiar to Daniel and everyone reading to everyone here if I showed you an image, and I didn't give him a chance to put it up, of a bald eagle. When you see a bald eagle, what do you immediately think of? The United States of America. This is what we call our herald or the, the, this image. And isn't it interesting that even as we're going to look at these images, they are all beasts of prey. And so this image of, of lions with eagles' wings would have been on the walls, the citadels, the palaces of Babylon. This lion that he sees typically on all fours literally gets up and begins to stand like a man and walk like a man. When Daniel has this dream and vision, Babylon is still ruling the world. In a few years, the kingdom is going to fall. It's going to be absorbed by the Medes and the Persians that we saw in Daniel chapter 5. And again, these wings are a type and a picture of just how quickly Babylon was able to subdue the surrounding territories through the aggressive policies and conquests of Nebuchadnezzar. He literally takes over the Anatolian Peninsula. He literally takes over the Levant, which is the stretch of land that goes from Turkey all the way to Egypt. He literally subdues Egypt and he subdues them and takes them over. And some scholars suggest that the plucking of the wings or the wings being removed represent the insanity and the subsequent recovery and conversion of Nebuchadnezzar that's already been talked about in Daniel chapter 4. In other words, this person, this person and his kingdom all of a sudden has a reversal of course and begins in part to act the part of a human being. And then the second beast is a bear with ribs in verse 5. Look what it says. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. 
Now, the second beast resembles a bear. It walks on one side. It has ribs. Voices speak. The bear-like creature is instructed to arise and devour or feed on flesh. Scholars know that the Persian army raised 1.5 million soldiers. And they literally went out. And they crushed Lydia. This is a dominant power in what's now modern Turkey. They crushed um, Babylon. They crushed Egypt. And so scholars seem to think that the Medes and the Persians and this bear rising up, you, you're talking about two people groups that all of a sudden become somewhat disproportionate as the, the, the value and the influence of the Medes recede and the Persians go up and the three ribs that are sticking out of the bear's mouth are Lydia, conquered in 546 BC. Babylon conquered in 539 BC. Egypt subdued in 529 BC. So the Persian Empire, unlike the Babylonian Empire, is going to last some 200 plus years. But it's during this Medo-Persian Empire that the books like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are going to be written. The Jews are going to return to their land. And then this third beast, a leopard with four wings, it says in verse 6, After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. In other words, when it says and dominion was given to it, Dominion is an idiomatic expression which means the right to rule. The right to rule, to subjugate. And so this leopard or this panther is elegant, agile, powerful, cunning. And in the Bible, remember, wings speak of flight it speaks of the ability to get from one place to another in a rapid succession. And so this creature represents the Greek empire under Alexander the Great in 356 to 331 BC. Now you've got to understand, the Persians grow in influence. But then they start to wane in influence and the Greeks begin to rise in influence. In the 4th century BC, Socrates teaches Plato. Plato teaches Aristotle. Aristotle is arguably the smartest man in the world. Philip II, Alexander's father, hires Alexander and, or hires Aristotle to tutor his son. So Aristotle sits and literally, and I do mean literally, Alexander the Great is homeschooled by the smartest human being in the world who was taught by Plato, who happened to be taught by Socrates. And he will take over the world. 
At the age of 27, he will mount a campaign. He will cross the Hellespont. He will literally make his way all the way to the Indus Valley where he will subjugate that particular place. He will subjugate the Levant. He will subjugate Egypt. He will subjugate the then known world. And he does it in record time in 14 years after subjugating subjugating India, he'll return to Babylon. Now I want you to think about this. Babylon is the place where Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. Babylon is subdued by the Medes and the Persians. Babylon is then subdued by Alexander the Great. At the age of 33, he gets drunk. He catches pneumonia and he's getting ready to die. And as he's dying, He's surrounded by four generals. And they say, to whom shall we give the kingdom? And Alexander the Great says, give it to the strong. And these four generals divide the kingdom of the world into four different territories giving rule over Macedonia, Asia, Assyria proper, and Egypt. These four generals, I happen to know, their names, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Two of those generals are going to be one to the north of Israel, the other to the south of Israel, and Israel in the middle is going to be the constant pawn in worldwide struggles, but the number four is always interesting. In the Bible, it's the number of the world. And the wings speak of this rapid conquest. And again, dominion means rule. And so the Greek culture and the Greek language will begin to permeate the empire. People in Greece will speak Greek, but people in Turkey and Babylon will speak Greek. In Egypt, they will speak Greek. In the surrounding Mediterranean, it will become the language of culture and commerce and learning. And it will eventually become the language that will be used to record the New Testament and its documents. And then there's this fourth beast, terrifying, with iron teeth. Look what it says. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. And I'm going to suggest to you that the residue are the borders of the empire that was subjected by Babylon, then Persia, then Greece. It was different from the beast that went before it. It had 10 horns. So this description is notable for several different reasons. This beast is different from the other beasts. In what way? Remember, if the first beast is like a lion, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard, this beast isn't given a description. It's literally, we're not told. It doesn't say a dragon. It doesn't say a giraffe. The only thing that is described are its head and its feet. 
It has huge iron teeth, which again is reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the lower half of the image that he had in Daniel chapter 2, where you have two legs, then you have two feet, and you have ten toes mixed with iron and in clay. Nebuchadnezzar's image has ten toes. This image has ten horns. Do you think that's a coincidence? It probably isn't. And so scholars believe the imagery is a reference to the Roman Empire. And that empire is going to dissolve around the 5th century. In the middle of the 1st century BC, Greece is going to go down in power and control. And Rome is going to arise in power and in control so that by the time that the Messiah appears on the scene, it's going to be during the time of the Roman Empire. And by the way, the Roman Empire is going to continue up until the 5th century where it's going to exist in a kind of a remnant form. The Roman Empire is then going to split literally into sections predominantly into two sections, west and east. During the reign of Diocletian, it's going to be divvied up into four sections, but, and at one point in the empire, it was divvied up into 120 administrative districts, but never, 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 never in history has it been in 10 districts. And so this is very, very important because it would seem that the manifestation of this empire is going to be re-manifested sometime in the future. Horns, by the way, in the Bible speak of power, authority, the right to rule. A horn was a type and a picture of kings and kingdoms. And so this has caused many people to believe that there's some sort of revived empire that's going to take place in the future. And in verse 8, look what Daniel writes, I was considering the horns. That means he's paying careful attention. It, the horns have drawn his attention for some reason. And there was another horn, a little horn. So now I want you to think about what you're reading. There are 10 horns on top of this beast's head. Another horn, an 11th horn, sprouts from this beast's head coming out among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. I think plucked is too nice of a word. Ladies pluck their eyebrows. These are ripped out by the roots. In other words, the horn is taken and it's ripped out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. In the vision, something strange occurs. Now, you already know the whole vision is strange. In the midst of the ten horns, the horn sprouts, this little horn and the little horn either witnesses the uprooting of the three horns or initiates 
and accomplishes the ripping out of the other three horns, which is going to leave seven horns. What Daniel calls the little horn. Daniel then makes a further observation. The horn has eyes like a man speaking pompous words in the Bible. The symbol for eyes always represents understanding, intelligence, the ability to interact. So this horn has eyes. The horn has a mouth. And it speaks pompous words or boastful words. Well, what does that mean? The mouth speaks against the living God, the God of the Bible. How do we know that? Because the interpretation is provided for us right in the chapter. And we'll talk more about this when we get to those verses. It says in verse 23 and 24, look, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. And in verse 24, the 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from the kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. He shall subdue the three kings. He shall speak. In the original language, there's, the word doesn't appear. Pompous. It just says, he shall speak words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. When we get to that, we're going to talk about it. Let me just suffice it to say at this point, the verse tells us the pompous words that are spoken, their blasphemous speech. Their blasphemous speech, which, re, which betrays a blasphemous character. Remember in the New Testament, it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so this being is speaking against God. And by the way, the root meaning of the word blasphemy in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language it is a word that speaks of injury to the identity or the reputation of another. So the spectrum can range from a lack of reverence to utter contempt of someone or something else. Ron Rhodes says, quote, it can also involve making claims of divinity for oneself as the Antichrist will do. Unquote. And so this is a mention of this creature that John the Apostle calls the Antichrist. He's given more names. So what can we glean from this very remote text, if you will, that this future Antichrist emerges from a future kingdom. He comes from relative obscurity, and from obscurity this creature gains great power. No one will be able to challenge him or remove him from the power. The political and military powers will align towards him. The eyes of a man speak that this is a person with intelligence and shrewdness and powers of observation 
salvation. And later on, we're going to talk more about this person and we're going to talk more about some of the things that have been suggested throughout history. Even as recently as people will, you know, have said, well, you know, I think that so-and-so is the Antichrist, and I think that so-and-so is the Antichrist, and what I will try to help you understand that whoever this character is and however he can be identified, we, we're going to conduct and we're going to draw up a profile, just like the FBI. We're going to run a profile. And we're going to find out exactly what the Bible says about this character. We know that he will be an individual with unmatched oratorical genius. He will be the master of the spoken word. Most Bible scholars anticipate his ability with words and speech will motivate, inspire the masses. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, it says that he has the mouth of a lion. The Bible contains a great deal of information about him. And again, I'm going to have a whole lot more to say about him. But I do just want to, at this point, remind you that he will be energized by Satan. In the book of Revelation, he's called the great red dragon in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, which, again, the color red suggests that this being is bathed in the blood of the saints. He's a murderer and a liar, John 8, 44. The dragon is pictured in the book of Revelation with seven heads and ten Horns, and on those heads are diadems or crowns. It would appear that the book of Revelation and the description given in Daniel are exactly the same. It describes a catastrophic control over human events in the future, and it would appear that whoever this future Antichrist is, that he will control or that there will be control of ten regions or sectors or countries or sovereign areas, and that three of those will collapse and seven will serve as a command and a control kind of center. And throughout the ages, many people have looked to the European Union as perhaps some sort of prospect for this coalition. The European Union is marked by unity and division. Are the events around the world setting the stage for the events that were described in Daniel chapter 2 and are now being described in Daniel chapter 7? Are the prophetic pieces of the puzzle coming together in order to launch this future man of sin? And the Bible's description of this man and his future does sound a bit frightening. But we have to remember that Christians don't live in fear. In Job chapter 12, verse 23, it says, He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul said, From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, He creates them to rise. He creates them to fall. 
wall. He determines their boundaries. And he also notes that he does this not so that people would be lost, so that people would be saved. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, we read, quote, It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. Satan isn't in control. God is in control. The Lord will have his way. People always ask me, are we living in the end times? Have we come to the end of the end times? If we take a biblical view of end times, we discover that end times began with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the moment that Jesus rose from the dead, the end time clock started ticking. The big question is, are we at the end of the end of times? Have you ever had a moment of weakness or temptation and the surprising thought came to you, I probably shouldn't be doing this. Jesus could come back at any moment. Well, if you have, then prophecy is doing what it's supposed to do. Prophecy was never meant to terrify. It was always meant to purify. We live in a world crushed by sin and despair, and the whole world wants peace. Well over a thousand years ago, Augustine said, quote, order your soul, reduce your wants, live in charity, which means love manifested in deeds, associate in Christian community, obey the laws, trust providence. Over a thousand years ago, Augustine gave his challenge to the world. And I'm going to give you a similar challenge. Live your life like Jesus could come back today. But prepare your life like he might be calling you to a lifetime of ministry. It's still good advice. Order your soul. Put your spiritual affairs in order. Reduce your wants. Increase your love. Cultivate community. Be a peacemaker. And then watch. Watch. As the future begins to unfold right before your eyes. So this is the beginning. There's so much more. I want to encourage you, read ahead. You won't be disappointed. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that we've come to this place in time and space. Lord, we look back at what's happened. And then we try to remove the curtain as we take a peek into the future. Lord, we know. We know, we know, we know with certainty that everything that the Bible says, not only about the prophecies that took place in the past, 
but those prophecies which must come to pass in the future will in fact come to pass. How will they? And what will they look like? Lord, again, like the psalmist, we once again pray, Lord, give us eyes to see what's contained in the Bible so that we could understand what it is that you want us to do and how you want us to go forward. In Jesus' name, amen.